0: All right, well, I trust you all are in the book of Acts. We'll be uh, addressing the resurrection of Christ from, from that, actually, chapter one, a few probably passages from other places, but mainly from chapter one. Our, our theme is the powerful witness to the gospel that we find in the book of Acts. Today, of course, is celebration of Easter, the resurrection of Christ. I haven't looked on the calendar because I guess over the years I haven't paid much attention that uh, Easter occurred and it wasn't until some 48 or 50 days later. I still haven't been able to correctly figure out the math. Um, 50 days later was uh, Pentecost, the coming of the Holy Spirit. Jesus spent about 40 days on earth, and then there's that eight to 10-day space where he went up into heaven. And then the Holy Spirit came down in Acts chapter 2. So it's an amazing passage. It's an amazing event. The ascension of Jesus is amazing. His coronation... Uh, hit out of our sight, but certainly depicted in other places in the Bible, and then the coming of the Holy Spirit, the crucial final redemptive historical event uh, that uh, fulfills uh, the coming of Jesus, the establishment of the kingdom of God. So this morning, we just want to talk about what is witness. So when I was a kid growing up, I remember watching Jesus movies. Even later in life, when I was, you know, 20, between 20 and 30, and every now and then would watch a, a movie about Jesus, whether it was in the theater or on TV, the movies still reinforced the biblical narratives. The only debates were, well, they're getting kind of liberal here or there, but there was still the story of Jesus presented as a real history, um, and that's the fairy that you got. And everybody would wonder, okay, what will be the Christmas movie this year or the Easter movie this year? Not so anymore. Now, if you try to uh, find some kind of media presentation of Christ, you're going to get the Jesus Seminar or the leftovers from it, the expositions of it. You're going to get things like the Da Vinci Code and National Geographic just sort of lumping Christianity as being just among the many religions of the world. And everything you get is scholarly documentaries designed to do one thing, dilute and undermine the gospel of Christ. In the popular person, the popular viewpoint is very much or can be very much affected by that. Now these things come in several categories. These, they have speculations that are in these documentaries. Insinuations and even affirmations that Jesus either did not really exist Maybe that's a little on the edge, but it's still out there. You can still find it. Jesus was not really a historical person. The Gospels are merely the stuff of myth and legend. Other speculations would say that Jesus really didn't die. He did not physically die. He swooned, he fainted maybe, or some, something along those lines, or the Islamist viewpoint that he wasn't crucified. He didn't really die. Those are some things that are out there. Well, if Jesus didn't exist, you know, there's no resurrection. If Jesus didn't die, there's no resurrection. And then finally they say, well, maybe he died, but he didn't really rise. There's no resurrection because that part didn't happen. The real story of what happened has been suppressed or embellished, all of the conspiracy-type theories that are out there. His body was stolen by the uh, gardener perhaps. There's a mistaken identity. Maybe it was the gardener. Jesus maybe had a twin brother. My favorite, the, the ladies when they came to the tomb picked the wrong tomb, therefore it was empty. That the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus were merely hallucinations or visions. The apostles talked with someone yesterday just about that, yeah, the apostles are really kind of vague and ambivalent. You know, they're kind of foggy and don't really know what's going on. That's what all these speculations would do. They have one design. They have one purpose, to undermine the gospel, to undermine faith in the gospel, to undermine confidence in the gospel. All of these speculations will have some form of dismissing the gospel narratives in some way as unreliable, adjusting the gospel narratives, adding their own version to it, We're adjusting the post-resurrection narratives. Again, they come to these narratives, and they are narratives. They're not stories. They're not legends. They are clearly narratives. They are put forth as narratives. And so they try to adjust them. It's kind of interesting when someone uses the Bible to talk about Jesus and then abandons the Bible when they don't like something. Well, we like this Jesus who was a nice guy, and he was good, and he was self-giving and all this, but, you know, this resurrected Jesus we're, we're, we're going to you know, stop the biblical narrative there and just put in our own version. So the Bible's somewhat authoritative until it comes to the things that they don't particularly like. Always interesting how that happens. Speculations always reject the testimony of eyewitnesses, the testimony of Old Testament prophecy, and the testimony of the Holy Spirit. And that's what we're going to look at today. Our faith is based in these three things. They can all be enlarged and expanded, but these core things, that the gospel of Jesus Christ, including his death and his resurrection and his ascension, is based on eyewitness testimony of credible men. These are credible testimonies, and we're going to see that that this is what Jesus ordained and this is what was considered and was guarded and uh, was specified and was recognized in the early church. Old Testament prophecy. Kind of hard to fabricate Old Testament prophecy. The testimony of the Scriptures, two, four 4,000 years of, of testimony to the coming of Christ. We just watched a Movie last night, went to the movie uh, The Only Son. It was a good movie. It was about Abraham having his, bring, bringing Isaac up and sacrificing him. Um, yeah, God giving his only son. Kind of hard to erase those things or reimagine those things as not talking about the death and resurrection of Christ. And then there's the personal testimony of the Holy Spirit. The most significant thing in a person's life. So Acts 4.33, there's sort of a passage that captures the essence of what we want to talk about this morning. And with great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and abundant grace was upon them all. Let's just pray and ask the Lord to be with us in this particular focus. Heavenly Father, we come to your throne and... Lord, you have borne witness concerning your Son. That witness has been written in Scriptures. Those Scriptures are reliable. They've been around for 2,000 years. Prior to them, your Scriptures that were being fulfilled by those New Testament Gospels. Your Word has been around for thousands of years. Lord, we thank you for it. We thank you that that is what bears testimony to Jesus. And then we have eyewitnesses, Lord, that you've established and they're credible men. And you give us your Holy Spirit to bear witness in our own hearts to the truth of these things. Lord, as we open this up this morning, just pray that we would just have a fresh sense that Jesus is raised, that Jesus is ascended, that Jesus is at your right hand, and this is the power of the gospel. His death erases our guilt, and his resurrection brings us into life that will one day unfold into eternity. Lord, what a blessing, what a privilege. What a grace, what a joy, what a hope. Um, Lord, just be with us this morning and may we be like those men on the road to Emmaus that our hearts would burn within us by your spirit as we look at these things. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Raw skepticism. In Genesis 2, 16 and 17, we read where God creates Adam, later Eve. God gives some directives to Adam. He has some purpose. He has some things to do. God makes provision for everything Adam would ever need, trees in the garden, all kinds, even the tree of life. Adam could have eaten of the tree of life. There's no evidence that he couldn't. There's no evidence that he had to earn that right. He had that privilege from the beginning. There was only one tree that he was not to eat of, and that was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A lot could be said about that, but basically the tree, you know, wasn't a bad tree. It didn't have some, you know, creepy fence around it and look like, you know, maybe the Adams family or, or something. The tree was desirable, pleasant to the eyes, could make one wise in a certain sense from a certain vantage point. The only difference between that tree and all the other trees in the garden was one thing and one thing alone, the commandment of God. And as Adam went through that garden and picked this fruit and that, a lot of yummy stuff in there, when he passed by the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, there was that commandment, don't eat of that tree. And as long as Adam obeyed that commandment, he was demonstrating and showing and living out his allegiance to God. God made me in his image, this is God's world, And I'm not supposed to eat of that tree, and the only real reason is because God said so. You know, the thing that kids hate to hear from the parents. Because I said so. But because I said so is vital. It's Because I said so demonstrates one's allegiance to God. We do it because he said so. Because he has the right to say so. Because what he says is in our best interest. And there are reasons for his said so, and we just have to trust him in it. And God said, in the day you eat thereof, there's a consequence, a very real consequence. You will surely die. It is certain. It is plain. This will happen. The surety of death in all of its dimensions, that would come as a result of disobedience. Well, you read on down to Genesis 3, chapter 4, or chapter 3, verse 4, and you have the old serpent there, and the serpent's talking to the woman. He's got her in a conversation. That was the first mistake. He's starting to cast aspersions and doubts on God, and finally he, he moves things from, you know, has God said sort of questioning the, the beginnings of skepticism to this point-blank just rejection of God's revelation. The serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. The Hebrew is very interesting because the Hebrew has a little particle that means no, lamad Aleph. It's a very, you know, sort of insignificant particle and when you read the Hebrew here in three four, it's an exact copy of you shall surely die with a little not inserted in between and not that means everything. And not that determine the difference between life and death and heaven and eternal punishment. This is our first example of skepticism. It starts with questions, ends with raw denial. Now some skepticism is perhaps legitimate, doubt or uncertainty whether something's happened. The raw skepticism which we see here—it's just an aggressive assertion of denial, of just rabid unbelief, of just distrust, just to be distrusting, of suspicion. And we know that behind this is Satan, who is who is aligned against God, doing everything he can to get Adam and Eve to buy into his story. Now, Satan didn't believe his own story. He knew what would happen, so he was lying. He wasn't sitting there going, oh, you won't die, you know. That's my opinion. But you know, you should take it up. He's lying. He knew what would happen. It was his purpose. And this was the the original pattern, the first example of Raw skepticism, and certainly not the last expression of it. Well, interesting, you turn to chapter 5 in Genesis and you get the all of the uh, sort of genealogies. They're interesting to read. But they all follow a pattern. So all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. And all the days of Seth were so and so, and he died. And all the days of Enosh were so many, and he died. And Kenan, and he died. And Mahalal, and he died. And Jared, and he died. And Methuselah, and he died. And Lamech, and he died. We have an entire chapter dedicated to exposing the catastrophic outcome of skepticism. Skepticism is not noble. It's not honorable. It's just raw disbelief for its own purposes. Don't buy into it. Don't be or become a skeptic not noble. It's good to search things out. It's good to look for credibility in things, but it's wrong just to doubt everything on purpose. You're stepping into a world of the prince of darkness, particularly when it comes to God and particularly when it comes to the death and resurrection of Christ. So with this in mind, that skepticism is not been shown to be a beneficial thing doesn't really accomplish anything but negative let's look at Acts 1, 1 and 2 and see where the book of Acts the first chapter is here to present to us the absolute reliability of every dimension of God's testimony to the death and the resurrection and ascension of his son As Acts 1, 1, and 2 opens up, Luke, who wrote Acts, we know he did. Uh, All of the similarities between Luke and Acts, all the connections are clear. Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke, and he wrote Acts. And here he says, the first account, that is the Gospel of Luke, I composed something he did. The Gospel writers actually do some literary composition, uh, and uh, some thought is brought in as they compose these Gospels. They do it by the Holy Spirit. But nevertheless, they compose them. They're composers. Luke is here referring to his gospel that's a historical narrative of the words and deeds of Jesus of Nazareth. We'll be coming to the to Luke in the first few chapters soon, and we'll see that Luke labors at stating this, that this is narrative, that this is eyewitness testimony. Theophilus, who is included in the introduction to Luke, simply means friend of God. It could actually be a person. Back in those days when a book was written, it took some money, and so someone had to underwrite it. Um, and if you didn't have the money yourself, then you would get a patron. And perhaps Theophilus was a patron who underwrote the, the the time it took in the paper and things like that that it took to compose the Gospel of Luke. Or, as I personally think, more, more generically, Theophilus is just sort of a literary device to say, The first account I I composed, and I'm writing this to anybody who wants to be a friend of God, to anyone who is a God-fearer, as we'll see in the book of Acts, or we can see in the book of Acts, to anybody who loves God. The first account I composed, Theophilus, to everybody who's truly interested and not the raw skeptic. The first account I composed about all that Jesus began to do and to teach again. All the words and works of Jesus. Now, in all of the scholarly studies in our day, you will find that Luke was not only a physician, but he was also a first-rate historian. His narratives have proven absolutely reliable. He followed all of the good methodology in the first century of being an original historian. Historian. See, a lot of times, histories is just the digestion of previous histories. You know, I read 10 history books, and then I write my own history based on that. But in the first century and prior, the centuries prior, being a historian meant that you went and researched and and got some, you know, some original material, and the prized material was eyewitness testimony. And even though a historian knew that the eyewitness testimony would have somewhat of a spin or a bias to it, They always knew that that was the most reliable testimony as to what was really going on and really happening in any historical event. And we know that Luke is a first-rate historian because that's what he went after. Eyewitness testimony. I want to know and hear from the people that were there. I don't want third-hand stuff. I want first-hand recognition and knowledge of the events of Jesus' life. Who is Jesus? What did he do? What did he say? What are his miracles? What are all these things about? Luke presents Jesus of Nazareth as a real historic person, and the historical evidence for it is sure and certain. Jesus really did exist. He said, I composed this gospel about what Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up into heaven. And if you read his gospel, it starts out at the beginning of some people who were there at the uh, conception of John the Baptist, the conception of Jesus, the birth, all the way through up into the end of his gospel where Jesus is going into heaven. It spans that entire Period. It's presented as historical narrative, not as legend, not as myth, but as historical narrative, and it's presented as the culmination of a historical purpose and process. There's historical reliability behind the Gospels and historical reliability behind these first accounts in Acts. till the day he was taken up. Now, you can't be taken up into heaven unless you're alive. And you can't be alive unless you were raised from the dead, especially after being on a Roman cross, because the Romans were real clear about execution. They were experts at it. And if someone wasn't dead, if someone said you know, there was uh, some kind of uh, writ that someone should be crucified, someone should be killed in some way, the soldiers responsible for that, it was either that person was going to die or those soldiers were going to die. Somebody was going to die. And so the soldiers were real clear about making sure people died. And so here we have Luke's immediately talking about the day that Jesus is taken to heaven in his resurrection body. Now the assumptions of the Enlightenment rationalism, Enlightenment, 16, 1700s, around that that era, where they went from faith to the human rationalism, just humanism to try to figure out the universe which has grown into our day, into what we would call scientism, that science is God, science is the source of all knowledge. Rationalism and scientism will say you can't have people get raised from the dead. And given their assumptions, I would agree with them. You're right. Humans cannot raise other humans from the dead. Transhumanism, where they want to augment our bodies with all kinds of parts and pieces... That's still not going to achieve eternal life. It is impossible for human beings to raise themselves from the dead or raise others from the dead. And that I agree with the scientists. Where I disagree and we disagree is when they say it's not possible for God to intervene and do it himself. So the resurrection isn't some natural process. It is a miraculous process is it isn't an intervention of God. It's taking someone from a state of death into a state of aliveness. And I find it interesting that modern science really can't tell you about what space is. You ask them what space is and they really don't know. They'll talk around, throw some equations at you, but in the end they go, yeah, we really don't know. Ask them what time is and they're like, no, we don't know. We really don't know what time is. Is time determined by gravity? I mean, they just go back and forth and all kinds of things all over the internet on it. The arrow of time. They just don't understand why time only goes in one direction. They just can't describe it. They don't know why. They don't even know what energy is. And by the way, space, time, and energy are three of the four properties. The other one's gravity that they say makes up the stuff of the universe. And yet they can't tell you what it is. But the things that they are sure about, according to them, is that there is no God, and therefore there is no resurrection from the dead. <coughs> <coughs> what a position. I don't know where everything comes from. I don't even really know how it works, and I don't even really know what it is about. And as a matter of fact, I'm not even sure it's there. I don't know if you've looked at the recent stuff. They question existence and reality now. But we do know that God doesn't exist. And we do know he can't intervene in his creation. I always <coughs> find that interesting. But here we have Luke. is like, nope, we've got some eyewitness testimony here by credible people. And I interviewed them, and I put together a narrative, starting from how Jesus came to be Jesus to how Jesus came to leave us and go into heaven. He also records this that many folks encountered the resurrection Jesus. Jesus focused on the apostles, and Jesus gave directives to remain in Jerusalem, to wait for the Holy Spirit, and that that would be the basis for the gospel going to all nations. He was taken up into heaven after, by the Holy Spirit, he had given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. There's this focus on the apostles. Remember, he opened their minds that they should understand the scriptures. We saw that last week. Something we didn't look at is on the road to Emmaus, the two fellows were talking to Jesus, and he took them from Moses through the end of the, of the scriptures about the Christ, how he should suffer and die. And then when they finally figure out who he is, because they were more, more focused on, on, on what they were learning from Jesus as they were walking with him, And finally, their eyes were open. They understood, man, we're talking to Jesus, the resurrected Jesus. And they commented, Did not our hearts burn within us when we walked with him in the way? When he opened to us the scriptures. And these are words of life. When God the Lord comes and starts to take his word and shed it abroad in your heart, your heart starts to burn within you. Not your head. I mean, your head might be exploding, but your heart is burning. That's the power of the gospel. But they were to wait there until the Holy Spirit came upon them. Now remember, this is kind of a strange thing. Well, wait a minute. Wasn't the Holy Spirit with the apostles? Didn't Jesus tell Peter, you know, hey, you've just acknowledged that I'm the Christ and you didn't get that from men. Flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you. But my Father who is in heaven... Didn't they already have the Holy Spirit? Well, we have a few interesting passages in the Scripture, particularly in the Gospel of John, where Jesus said, hey, the Holy Spirit, whom the world can't receive, right now he's with you, but there's a coming a day, that day of Pentecost, when he will be in you. He's saying, apostles, you're here in this sort of transitional moment in the history of redemption, you have the influence of the Holy Spirit in your life. But you, are not, you have not fully received the Holy Spirit in the full sense and in the full reality and the full empowerment of a Holy Spirit given from the right hand of God. Next, to, we see that they truly and fully receive the Holy Spirit. That is with the point at which they are ultimately as far as we can tell, truly born of God and empowered with the gospel. Now, all this that's here is, we saw some of this last week anyway, it's basic outline. But here's how Acts starts out. Now, Luke wants us to understand that these apostles that he had given orders to, he had spoken with, Several things about them. He had presented himself alive after his suffering. Jesus personally appeared to these fellows. Now others seen him. Sometimes we know that there's above 500 at once. So there were a number of people who saw Jesus after his resurrection. But Jesus was focused on these men in particular because these men in particular had a unique task. And we're going to see what that task is. Jesus presented himself alive unto him after he had died, meaning he did die and then he rose. So this is a post-suffering death. This is a resurrection, a post-suffering appearance. This is a resurrection appearance. He presented himself, and he presented himself by many convincing proofs. Now, some translations just have by many proofs. Um, some might say infallible proofs. Uh, proofs is a very specific term in the Greek, this many convincing proofs. The Greek word tekmarion, it means conclusive proof. It's not just, you know, hey, I gave you, you know, I told you the sky was blue and took, took a snapped a picture of it and here it is. Uh, these are convincing proofs. These are conclusive proofs. These are proofs that have evidence, evidence that validates and removes all doubt. No skepticism here. Jesus presented himself alive. He appeared bodily, as we'll see looking at the next verse or next section. He showed his healed wounds. We read that in Luke twenty-four forty, and in John 20 with Doubting Thomas. A convincing proof. Remember what Thomas said? Hey, I won't believe he's raised unless I can put my fingers into his wounds. So Jesus shows up a little later and takes him up on that. Be careful what you say to the Lord. <laughs> he may take you up on it. Jesus showed his healed wounds. Jesus ate and drank with them. In Luke chapter 24... Not only did he show his wounds, but it says he said, "Hey, do you have any food here?" And he ate in front of them, on purpose to show them, "I am here, alive, raised with a human body. I'm not, you know some ghost. I'm not uh, some apparition. This is me. I can chomp down a chick-fil-A. I'm alive." Jesus gave clear dis- demonstrations that he was alive with normal bodily existence and normal bodily functions many convincing proofs and so if you were there watching him eat seeing his wounds looking at him talking with him having regular conversation with him you knew this wasn't a dream this wasn't a hallucination this wasn't a mirage this was Jesus Christ risen from the dead Now, he appeared to them over a period of 40 days, and he appeared to a lot of people. He appeared to the women at the tomb, Matthew 28 and Luke 24. He appeared to Mary Magdalene, Mark 16 and John 20. He appeared to the two men on the road to Emmaus, Luke 24, and mentioned by Mark in Mark 16. He appeared to Peter, Luke 24, 1 Corinthians 5. He appeared to the disciples and apostles in different configurations, Luke 24, 1 Corinthians 15. He appeared at the Sea of Galilee, John 21, and he appeared again in Galilee in another way, Matthew 28, Mark 16. He appeared to 500 at once, 1 Corinthians 15. He appeared to James, 1 Corinthians 15. And as we'll see, he also appeared to others. He had to have done that in order to fulfill something. And he did this over a space of 40 days. This wasn't just a moment in time. Jesus didn't rise from the dead and say, okay, I've got half an hour to spend with you, then I'm going into heaven. Forty days. Different groups. And he spoke with them. He conversed with them. He talked to them. It was intelligent discourse. We have you know, been reminded again he opened minds to understand the scriptures. He focused on the kingdom of God as promised and prophesied and foreshadowed in the Old Testament from Moses to prophets to Psalms, the full gamut of the Old Testament. He presented the Old Testament as is now fulfilled in his death, his resurrection, his glorification, and the gospel going to all nations. We have these summaries at the end of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and here Luke again goes over it again. This is the ending of my gospel, and this is the starting point of the church now going out into the world. This is the foundation. The Old Testament. The witness of the Old Testament. Skipping on down to Acts chapter one, verses eight and nine, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. The Great Commission again is to be carried out in the dynamic of the Holy Spirit. Whatever value planning, organization, demographic analysis, and all those things, whatever value they may have, the ultimate power and the real power is the Holy Spirit. And we should should and can never forget that. We can use those other things, they might be tools that are helpful. But you can do all your demographic study and say we're going to go into this area and the Lord just doesn't show up. You know, sometimes you witness to people and and, and the Spirit is just pulling the witness out of you. Other times you feel like you're just trying to push a word over the edge of a cliff or something. It's just there's, there's nothing there. Sometimes God has to say things to people and other times God has nothing to say to people. Remember the Apostle Paul, he had his planning, he did his planning. Hey, I'm, I've gone up through Antioch again, my second missionary journey, and he's working his way over to the coast, and he's going to go to Ephesus, a big, important city, establish a church there. I mean, that's his plan. Let's get centers of people and populations, establish the, you know, a church there, and let that church then evangelize everyone around them. Strange, we I think Chris and I were talking to someone a few years ago, and they were, they were laying this plan out as if it was some new thing, and I was thinking, isn't this what Paul did in the book of Acts? Oh, well. <clears throat> I guess it took 2,000 years to figure it out. Planning's good, but the Holy Spirit is essential. And again, the Holy Spirit had been with the apostles, but now he was going to be in them, and they were going to be fully empowered to bring that gospel to a hostile world. When the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses. This is the point. This is the core contribution of the apostles. They are their eyewitness testimony to the historicity of Jesus. Sure, they lay foundations of truth. Yes. But this is the core foundation. Eyewitness testimony. This was not done in a corner. Jesus Christ lived and taught and performed miracles and many people heard him and saw it and they bear witness and they testify and that testimony is worth listening to because the testimony is credible. There were no video cameras in the first century. The only basis you could have For the gospel would be eyewitness testimony and that eyewitness testimony inscripturated in gospels and acts and letters. And notice here is Jesus speaking. You are going to receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. This is Jesus saying how the Great Commission is supposed to be done. And you are going to be my witnesses. This idea of apostles and apostolic witness. Isn't something men came up with, this is something God came up with. God has instituted that we are to believe the testimony of credible men. That's from God. And this word they're used to be a witness, to testify, is the Greek word matureo, to be a witness, to bear witness, to affirm that one has seen or heard or experienced something. To declare something exists or is the case, eyewitness testimony. You will be my witnesses. Now it's interesting that folks will say, "Ah, the eyewitness testimony of the apostles. Who can't trust that?" But well, wait a minute. Eyewitness testimony is kind of important. Eyewitness testimony is acceptable in a law court, right? Go to a murder trial. And eyewitnesses testified that they saw this and they saw that. That's entered in as evidence, isn't it? It can convict a person. It can give them the death penalty. Eyewitness testimony is significant. Again, as we talked about, eyewitness testimony is uniquely evaluated by historians. They know that eyewitness testimony is the best. If they could get an eyewitness instead of some newspapers from the first century, they'd pick the eyewitness any day. Eyewitness testimony is legitimate and foundation to the gospel. This is God's chosen mode. Really great book out there. Many of you are familiar with it. I think uh, some of the younger people are going through it, The Cold Case Christianity by Warner Wallace. Just a great read and a great angle on the value and purpose and significance and characteristics of eyewitness testimony. So these apostles have been chosen before to be Jesus' foundational witnesses to his life, to his death, to his burial, to his resurrection, and to his ascension. And it's going to be around the world in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, we know that drill. Even the remotest parts of the earth, places where you go and get malaria and die, comprehensive, worldwide preaching. And this was his final bodily appearance of the resurrected Jesus to his disciples. After he said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. Now, Luke elaborates on this scene in chapter 24 of his gospel, where Jesus has raised hands and blessings, a great picture to always remember. Here in Acts chapter 1, he includes the, sorry, the, the statements of the angels that were around. And if you want to know what happened when Jesus went into heaven, read Revelation chapter 3 and 4. That's what happened. Apocalyptic imagery, but Jesus went and was crowned and all of the angels in heaven and on earth and every name that's named falling down, worshiping before him. We have a picture you could read a similar picture in Revelation chapter 12. It a, has a different angle, but Revelation chapter 12, 1 through 6, the man-child being caught up into heaven, the coronation of Christ. Now, as we read on, Acts, 5, Acts chapter 1, verse 15, 16, at that time Peter stood up in the midst of the brethren, about 120 people. They were gathered together, and he said, hey, we've got to do some business here. We've got some business to attend to. Brethren, the scriptures had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested him. So he's saying, hey, Judas was a, bit, was a traitor. We find out very quickly that Judas hung himself. Um, I always thought it was interesting. It says uh, there's sort of two different accounts of Judas. You know, one was that he fell down and his guts gushed out, and the other one was he hung himself. And one of the movies, back when they actually had movies that you know, sort of were trying to reinforce the gospels. They had a picture of Judas hanging himself over a cliff so that he both hung himself and then fell down in unsightly mess. So I thought it was interesting. No contradictions, necessarily. People with uh, low imaginations <coughs> start saying there's contradictions in the scripture. The scriptures had to be fulfilled. Notice Peter's view of Scripture. The) <coughs> The mouth of David, because he sang his psalms and then recorded them. The Holy Spirit foretold by David. The Holy Spirit working dynamically, operating dynamically through a human author, produces Scripture, Scripture that has the authority of God himself. So here's the Scripture telling us that we've got to do something. And he quotes the Scripture, "...for he was counted among us and received his share in this ministry." For it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it, Psalm 69, and then Psalm 109, verse 8, let another take his office, and that's what Peter focuses on. We've got to replace Judas, and this is because of the Scriptures. Therefore, it's necessary. The Scriptures are spoken. We have to find a a suitable replacement for Judas. And now the requirements are laid out. The requirements are this. They're necessary requirements. They're non-negotiable. To replace Judas, you have to be someone who's accompanied Jesus and the apostles all the time that the Lord went in and out among us, he said. There are a number of people always around Jesus. There were the 12 apostles, but there were others. And to replace Judas, you had to have been one of those others And you had to have been there from the beginning with the baptism of John. So from the days of John the Baptist, you had to be there when Jesus was baptized. And you had to have been around and associating yourselves and interacting and being personally involved, personally experiencing to the day that he was taken up from us. You had to be there when Jesus went into heaven. That's the requirement. And why is this the requirement? Why isn't it a seminary degree? Why isn't it something else? Because what is the foundational purpose of the apostles? They are to do what? They are to bear witness. You can't bear witness to something that you get third hand. So someone had to have first hand knowledge. Because they are going to become a witness with the rest of the apostles of Jesus' resurrection. Again, here's the basis of gospel witness. It's personal, comprehensive eyewitness experience. The culminating content of this witness is the resurrection and death, the death of Jesus of Nazareth and his bodily resurrection. And notice that the apostles are careful to maintain this. To say that somehow the Gospels were just a game of telephone, you know, things just kind of morphed and the story got bigger and bigger is absurd. These guys were just serious that if we're going to replace Judas, they better be a competent, capable eyewitness. Eyewitness of a resurrection, a change of state from being physically dead to a state of being physically alive. And so what are the foundations of our faith? There's the testimony of eyewitnesses. We can see it again in 2, 23 and 24, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God you crucified and killed. You're to be a witness that Jesus died. And you're to be a witness that God raised him up, loosing the agony of death that Jesus rose from the dead. This is the testimony, the eyewitness testimony. We've talked about the testimony of prophecy In Acts 20, 23 and 24, David Shell referred to it, Psalm 16. He refers to the resurrection and David spoke about the resurrection of the Christ and, and <clears throat> that's in the scriptures. The scriptures testify to the resurrection. There are many scriptures, multiple scriptures. You could spend years talking about all the scriptures that are the testimony of God then there's a testimony of the Holy Spirit, and this is interesting. In Acts 5, 30 through 32, we read that the God of our fathers, here's Peter speaking again, the God of our fathers raised up Jesus, the God of our fathers, in continuity with the history of redemption, God raised up Jesus, whom you put to death by hanging him on a cross. Jesus was crucified, Islam is wrong. Put him to death, he was on the cross and he died. Jesus existed, Jesus died, and Jesus rose. He's the one whom God exalted to his right hand, Psalm 110. As a prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins, Jesus is at the right hand of God to bring salvation to Israel and the nations. And we are witnesses of these things. The apostolic witness. But there's another witness that Peter brings in, and it's the witness of the Holy Spirit. So is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those that obey him. Now, the Holy Spirit was with the apostles. They were doing miracles. But this is more than that. This is different than that. This is beyond that. This is not the miracles you can see with your eyes. This is something that you can only see with your heart. You are given the Holy Spirit to those that obey him. And he bears witness to what? when the Holy Spirit comes into a person's life, he doesn't bear witness to ideas floating up here. He bears witness to the Scriptures, that they're true. He bears witness that that apostolic testimony is true and is credible. He bears witness that those Old Testament prophecies are true and credible. And in conjunction with those witnesses of Scripture, whether Old Testament or New, whether psalms or gospels, the Holy Spirit bears witness in your heart. That is the ultimate testimony and the ultimate basis of faith. So the question for each of you is, do you have that witness in yourself? Is your faith in Christ merely a faith that is based on, well, being a, around Christianity growing up or associating with Christian Christian things? Because... Well, at least the country used to be Christian anyway. Or do you have this witness in your heart that you know, that you know, that you know that Jesus is at the right hand of God? As Paul says, if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you're going to be saved. That's real. And that can only come from the Holy Spirit. And so today, if you're a Theophilus, if you're someone who's concerned about God, perhaps you've been a skeptic, perhaps you've mocked God in the past, but now you're getting a sneaking feeling that your life isn't going so great and the world isn't going so well and maybe, maybe there's more to this world than what you can see with the eye. And the scientists, you know, are a little bit confused themselves, although they keep saying they're not then they keep saying they are. Space telescopes have uh, put a big dent in some of their theories. And you start realizing there's more to this world than what you can gain from scientific knowledge. There's more to life. There's more to your existence There's more to meaning. There's more to purpose. There's more to having something worth living for. When you're young, the world is before you, and you keep thinking, okay, I'm moving forward. I'm moving forward. And you get to middle age, and you start to realize, wow, I've kind of got there, and this is all there is. Then you start getting older, and that I won't discuss it because I don't want to. Scare all 'all. (laughs) y'all. And you start to realize if there's no meaning beyond the grave, there's no meaning here. If all I am is a blob of protoplasm, then what's the point of even breathing? You start to think in those terms. And you start thinking maybe there's a God. Maybe human existence is defined by more than genomes and chemical processes. You want to know about God. You want to know if this story of Jesus is true. Does he, did he really die on a cross? People are arguing and saying he isn't, but did he? And Well, here are the original documents here. You, we've read some of them to you. You did Jesus really rise from the dead? I mean, that's a big ticket item. Yeah. And if there's no resurrection of the dead, then what hope do I have? I want to know God. Call upon Him, ask Him for His Holy Spirit. Ask him for his own personal, credible, immutable witness of his Holy Spirit. Ask him to confirm the testimony of the eyewitnesses, to confirm the testimony of Old Testament prophecy that it would truly burn in your heart, that the Holy Spirit would shed abroad in your heart faith and hope and love. Well, that's Acts chapter 1 the foundations of faith let's pray Heavenly Father we come to you and we thank you that faith is not based on human constructs that in the end you grant faith in the end faith is a living thing that opens our eyes to the truth and realities of who you are and to be able to have confidence and trust in your word Lord, we pray that for those of us here who have that faith, you'd always increase it, always shore it up, always always be something that we hold to dearly as a precious gift and a precious possession. And Lord, for those who don't know you, for those who are skeptics, Lord, turn them into Theophiluses. And for those who are Theophilus searching for God, just pray you'd answer them and make the death and the resurrection and the glorification of Jesus to be real and profitable, powerful, in their lives. We ask this simply in Jesus' name. Amen.